Hello, and welcome to the podcast of the May 2010 newsletter from Carol Proudfoot Edgar. My name is Susan Gelliland. I work with Carol, and I will be your reader. We hope that you enjoy this audio version. The Third Ear of the Shaman Sound Shamanic Practice Dear Friends, The shamanic path predicates one to listen. Listening allows us to perceive the world around and within us. Synesthesia is the process whereby all our senses work together to interpret and respond to our experiences. Whether through touch, light, smell, taste, or hearing, some combination is employed to allow us a profound understanding of whatever we are encountering. Sound is the most frequent triggering of this synesthesia process. If one of our senses is underdeveloped, various shamanic methods exist for improving in this area. That's because we rely on our senses for thriving spiritually as well as for sheer survival. We rely on them when doing shamanic healing. Whether in our daily living or in special occasions, for example ceremony and healing, our sensing bodies are the source for knowing and doing. So it's not surprising that shamanic traditions have practices during which the apprentice seeks more sensory acuity or learns how to restore some sense that has become diminished through lack of use or is underdeveloped. One method employed for attuning all our senses and maturing our soul is the practice of silence. Every spiritual tradition teaches its practitioners to set aside times for walking with silence. Some traditions provide special times and places for this practice. For example, silent retreats, a weekly day of silence, or the vision quest. The goal of all methods is the same. Be silent and know spirit, or know the one that goes by many names. Be silent so you can listen. Of all shamanic practices, those that focus on learning how to listen are considered the most essential to learn. Listening is our shared universality with all other beings and with the web both holding and weaving all in one. In one northwestern tribes, shamans would send their apprentice alone to the wilderness with a singular goal, Go learn from the animal how it listens. Come back and demonstrate you have so learned. The student's task was to track, follow, observe, and see how the particular animal listened to its surroundings. Of course, no one could completely know just how a specific animal listens, nor would humans be able to duplicate the individual powers of listening. Nevertheless, certain skills were acquired, and countless ancestral lore is derived from these times of listening to an animal listening. Once we start consciously cultivating the practice of listening, it almost becomes impossible not to listen. And then comes the next step, how to receive what one hears and how to respond appropriately, if response is needed. Seuptat is an Eskimo word for this deep listening, and translated means the ear of the animal. 
I've come to more fully appreciate this phrase through my years of studying and observing Bear, but my appreciation did not take complete rooting in me until I practiced over a long period of time how to move as Bear, for it became clear that Bear is always listening, and Bear's third ear seems located somewhere just slightly back of the head, between the two ears and deep in the skull. I now think I actually can see Bear listening with that third ear on those rare occasions I see Bear in Bear's wilderness habitat. So what does it mean for each of us to practice or to move with the ear of the animal? Certainly this entails some focused times of silence without and within. The silence without or silence in one's immediate surroundings, is to promote finding and learning silence within. Once we experience silence within ourselves, we begin creating a navigational map instructing us how to return here and how to bring silence here to silence there. By weaving the practice of silence with the art of listening, we develop the ear of the animal, or the shamanic third ear. Be silent so you can listen to what you are hearing. Be silent so the whisperings from the mysterium can find you. Walk with silence so you can hear other beings within the earth community and thereby learn more of your place and your role. Different experiences these last two weeks have led me to reflect on silence, sound, and listening, and their significance in the practice of shamanism. They are a good beginning place for this month's reflections. The Loudness of Home One morning, Bob and I were setting up our space within which to drum and tune ourselves to the day now awakening. While lighting the candle, I became aware of this seemingly loud roaring in my ears. It is just too noisy in our living room, I thought. I moved to the refrigerator and pulled its plug. Listened again. Still too noisy. I moved to the far wall and turned off our heating system. Blessed, blessed quiet was my body's response. As my shoulders relaxed, my chest expanded, and I could hear the birds singing in the garden. Now I could hear our drums and experience my harmony with the world beyond my skin. We've been doing this daily practice for eight weeks now. This is the first time, however, that I felt held within my home space rather than my usual contending with loud, disconcerting sounds. I journeyed to inquire about the optimal ambience within which to do our daily shamanic practice. Issues of silence, containment, and simplicity were presented to me as important. One teacher instructed me to focus specifically on silence and its importance on the shamanic path. I noted with interest that at noon on this very day, I had an appointment with an audiologist here in Santa Cruz. In December, a routine hearing test prompted her to recommend I purchase a hearing aid for my right ear. She then checked my health insurance to see what portion of the cost would be covered. The results? Because I was not in the danger zone of losing so-called necessary hearing, no coverage was available. This decision is based solely on speech and urban emergency frequency sounds. 
in other words, ambulance, the beeps at street crossing lights, etc. Of course, no decision considers the sounds one might wish to hear within the natural world around us. Three-fourths of the time I can follow conversations, although often the struggle to hear is quite tiring and stressful. So I postponed making a decision to purchase one until such time as I felt it necessary. In the last two months, I have been preparing for shamanic gatherings in which there might be intense and lively conversation within the groups. My desire to track these conversations and to hear the sounds of the natural environments in which we would be gathering led me to acquire a hearing aid. Like my other shamanic tools, it would assist my walk and work in the world. Loss of hearing, listening within circle. For the last eight to nine years, I have had no hearing in my left ear. One morning, I woke unable to hear on the left side. Diagnosis revealed that a major nerve had been irreparably damaged. Just how or why this occurred is unknown. Subsequent trips to specialists left me aware it was unlikely I would ever recover hearing in this ear. Overnight, I had become someone who could only hear from one ear. At first, I was staggered by the change. There is a profound difference between monotone and stereo sound, and it becomes more significant when some hearing loss has already occurred in the other ear, upon which one is now completely dependent. The first few years after my left ear hearing loss, I was quite conscious of adapting myself so that, like a satellite dish, I could turn my head in various directions to scoop up the sounds. If I forgot to do this, often I was unaware someone on my left side was speaking, and I certainly couldn't hear anyone approaching from that side. More important, however, I was committed to ensuring that the sound environments through which I moved were not ones that would further damage my one remaining hearing ear. Like many others with hearing challenges, I struggled to follow the flow of conversations in groups, and especially in workshops or circles I was leading. I became acutely aware how some people speak very softly, others quite rapidly, and some rather loudly. Since so much of group work is based on listening and hearing, I had to develop ways to try and ensure that I could track conversations in circle. This was most problematic when picking up conversations of those sitting to the left of me, since I might not even be aware they wished to speak or were speaking. I learned some very interesting things about circle dynamics and circle communications. That topic is for another newsletter. Right now, I want to focus on the challenges of hearing in circle. One intervention I discovered worked well was asking people to shake a rattle when they wish to speak. This functions similar to a talking stick that is used in some circles. However, unlike a talking stick, I can hear clearly the sound of the rattle and thus turn my head in the direction of the speaker. It was also marvelous to see how this one intervention, born of necessity, actually became a form of honoring both speaker and listeners. Rattle says, I wish to speak myself, and I wish your attention while so doing. Shaking one's rattle replaces, too, the raising of hands. I have always thought that the raising of hands simulated our early school environments in which we are asking permission to speak from the teacher. 
In a circle, such permission is given not by the leader, but from the circle itself. When someone shakes their rattle like a witnessing nod, everyone in circle turns and attends, and in some mysterious way, even the spirits seem to answer the call and surround the one speaking. In addition, rattles have the ability to stir the air or fire, both within and around oneself. Rattles stir the imagination, too. If this is done with intention and attention, then speaking oneself becomes a circle sacrament. Even with our attention turned to the speaker, there is also the matter of being able to hear what is spoken. For the longest time, I assumed everyone else could hear each other, and it was just my problem if I could not. I didn't let that deter me from asking someone to repeat or to raise their voice because I had committed myself to listening to each person. Sometimes, however, I became quite tired by the end of a day by the challenges of listening so hard and sometimes still not hearing. One evening, I was listening to someone share her journey. I could see her lips moving, but simply could not hear what she was saying. I told her I could not hear her and asked if she would speak louder. I assumed she then raised her voice, and yet I still could not hear, but the slightest sound of words being strung together. Was I completely losing the hearing in my right ear? I glanced around the circle, and everyone was looking at her, so I assumed they could hear her. At that point, I didn't say anything else, watched her lips, and tried to see if I could pick up some idea of what she was sharing, with little luck. Imagine then my surprise when later I share with another woman my concern about this, and she tells me she couldn't hear either. Regrouping after a short session break, I share my experience, and each one gives feedback. The result, the majority of the women could not hear her. The few who thought they knew what she was saying were sitting close to her. I wondered aloud, why didn't anyone say they couldn't hear? The responses ranged from, I was taught it was rude to interrupt someone speaking, to, I was waiting for you to say something, to, I had just spaced out and I wasn't paying attention. There is something quite humorous about this, were the results not so unsettling. Now, when I'm doing circles, I start by simply sharing the following. The loss of hearing in my left ear and why I may ask someone to raise their voice. Using the rattle to let the circle know one wishes to speak or share. Raising one's hand when one cannot hear the speaker and attending those who are speaking. I have also learned to take more frequent breaks when there is extensive verbal sharing in a circle. To truly listen and to hear requires us to be present to the particular person speaking. If we are also processing what we are hearing, then we're working our senses, our bodies. Most of us are not accustomed to long periods of this way of being present, so we need to take breaks, stretch our bodies, and then return to the most comfortable position for listening and hearing. We need to do this before we hear that restless stirring in a circle that indicates folks are tiring and need to switch gears, even if only momentarily. Being heard and being seen are primary needs, and these needs can only be filled when I have committed myself to listening and seeing others and to speaking myself. 
A major blessing of the circling way is that we can do this for one another and take this way into all our relations. The sound environment of shamanic circles, the power of drums and rattles. When I first lost my left side hearing eight years ago, I saw a specialist at the University of California Medical School in San Francisco. He wanted to make sure that I understood what specific sounds and the level of other sounds would damage or at least compromise the remaining hearing I had in my right ear. In his sound studio, he wanted to create the typical sound environments in which I do my work, so I took along some rattles and two drums that I use frequently, if not daily. In the course of our conversations, he inquired, how often am I in such drumming environments, how hard do I play my drum, and how many drums might be played at the same time? We did different sessions in which I varied both rapidity and volume of drumming. Each of these recordings were representative of a typical five-day workshop. He showed me a chart demonstrating various sound levels in a normal urban environment and compared these with my drumming he had recorded. He addressed a question I had. Why do certain sounds hurt so much that they can make me wince and instinctively cover my ears? Part of the damage done in hearing loss affects the ear's ability to dampen down sounds. The consequence of this is that high-frequency sounds are experienced at decibels higher than the normal hearing person would experience. That's why certain frequencies, such as those emitted from televisions, whistles, or even from rattles filled with particular materials, are experienced as painful to the ear. Knowing how these sounds might be experienced has really changed my life and how I do certain shamanic activities. For example, I never shake a rattle vigorously around someone's head or drum too close to someone's ears. In the rare instances that I forget, I've trained myself to automatically respond to the nonverbal cues from the other that indicate this is uncomfortable or that hurts and I immediately stop. These changes haven't made me any less spontaneous or any less vigorous in my shamanic activities. Actually knowing these cues and knowing the effects of certain sounds delivered to our ear allows me to be more vigorous, more spontaneous, because I know I'm not hurting the other in those ways about which I learned. Clearly, the more we can learn and understand about sound and our experience of sound, the more effective we can be. The last thing the audiologist did was to record my playing of drum at a sound volume that was safe. I played my drum long enough so I knew how that volume felt in my body and sounded to my right ear. Thus, I had embodied knowing of the wide range of drumming that was safe. I knew the range within which damage can, and most often does, occur. As a final cautionary note, he informed me that any time I felt tinnitus or ringing in my ears, that meant the hairs that aid hearing were being damaged, and to definitely avoid such environments. 
Of course, we both realize that we walk through a loud, frenetic, and sometimes shrieking world of chaotic sounds. Some of this cannot be avoided, but I could exert more control over how long I might be subject to such sounds. Our main concern was to make sure I was not doing work that would result in complete hearing loss. These audiology sessions occur during winter, a time when I'm usually not teaching workshops, and I stay home to hibernate as much as possible with the dreaming world. So I had plenty of time to develop a new relationship with my two primary drums. I had time to find the rattles that were strong in spirit, but had good sounds. I imagine there's a time and place for all the other different voices of our shamanic tools, but I had a specific intention in my tool choosing, to use drums and rattles for shamanic purposes that would not, when played, damage my hearing in my left ear or be painful to someone. Above all, these tools are for bonding with spirit and for healing. When I resumed teaching, I began introducing how to work more consciously with our drums. Early workshop sessions included learning more about drums' physical form, as well as spiritual qualities. I noted occasions in which drums seemed to be beaten, and those in which the drums were evoked or listened to as living beings. I started inviting participants to join in keeping a harmony with our drumming by everyone using the same sound volume. I understood how drumming in harmony creates this round container that has an even rim, a container into which any of us can fall or dive without losing our balance due to a topsy-turvy boat. The rim of the circle is not only horizontal, but vertical too, and spirits can slide down this verticality and land in the very center of our circle. This type of circle drumming is different from the times I may be dancing or doing healing. I'm talking about the drumming we do frequently in our circle to call us and spirits to circle. I became especially concerned to use our drums to send us deeper into our bodies and not so loud as to drive us out of our bodies. I mused upon the fact that our ancestors often used their drums outdoors or indoors within structures that were permeable and not trapping of sound. A fair amount of contemporary drumming in circles occurs within environments where sound cannot move beyond the skin of the walls and thus has the potential to simply implode us. And now, for my own protection, if I'm in a situation where the drumming is so loud that my ear hurts, I simply withdraw from that space and re-enter when the group is through drumming. And perhaps of most significance to me... I began exploring the issue of transcendence and incendence. Altered consciousness, as sometimes referred to in shamanic training, can indicate leaving our bodies, transcending the earthly realms, rising up and above the material world. Incendence indicates, in part, descending more into our bodies and in the very, very center of ourselves, finding the threads that link us to the eternal. In these times of incendence, I am transcending the threads that bind me to only the material forms or the personal internal luggage that I drag through my living, the luggage that drags me too. 
but I'm not transcending myself. I'm not leaving the core of who I am. I'm experiencing that core of myself in its divinity, in its holiness. I'm still exploring this issue and searching for more conscious ways of practicing shamanic incendence. In that respect, I'm grateful for the hearing loss that prompted my change in both tending and attending. Having a sound relationship with our drums. I have no idea how useful my experience might be for others of you, but I do think the issue of coming to drum and being with drum is important, and I do have concern that some of us may be jeopardizing the health of our hearing, maybe not in the very moment, but for the years coming. This is analogous to sports injuries that may not prevent playing the sport in the present moment, but may lead to a real reduction in overall health down the road. Equally important is our ongoing relationship with this other being whom we have named Drum. As with any relationship we wish to cultivate and seek some enduring friendship, we need to know our welcome and to welcome the other. When coming to meet another person, do we collapse the distance before we are even seen? Do we note how the other person seems to be and make our responses accordingly? I'm persuaded now that the quality of my shamanic experiences are relational to the quality of my relationship with Drum. Drum is my shamanic walkabout partner. When we meet and engage, does Drum know my affection for Drum? Do we have time for greeting and being greeted? Sometimes this greeting is in my eyes, sometimes through gently touching Drum's face and registering the temperature of Drum's skin. In that moment, I offer Drum my open, receptive palm, my hands, and listen to note if Drum needs some tending before we begin playing together. Just imagine being stuffed away in a sleeping bag, pulled out, and with no further ado, being required to sing your soul's song on the spot, or having your sweet spot beat upon before your sweetness in total is acknowledged. To add further insult, without time to find your balance and wakeful self, you are required to immediately be handled and wrapped upon with no attention given to wiping the dusty sleep particles from your eyes. I use these analogies because they're a way to indicate my perception of drum as a living, breathing entity, usually gifted to me through sacrifice of some animal and tree. So let us play with our drums in the manner of all sacred play. Let us find ways to introduce our drums to other friends and possible shamanic playmates. For example, often now when a circle first gathers, I invite the drums to be introduced and joined with us in circling. That means one drum is played, then the next drum, while the first one quietens, then the next drum, until we've gone around the whole circle and each drum has been seen and heard. And all together the drums and the humans have acknowledged, have seen and listened to the presence of each other. This can be wonderful, simply wonderful. It is a wonder-filled way to acknowledge these beings and honor their individuality. And as the drums continue to introduce themselves one by one, 
A deep belly awareness starts developing as they gather their increasingly many yet one power until we are all dwelling with, playing with, and holding together the great grand round one called drum. The practice of silence within the home. I have a vague memory of practicing silence within our home. Years ago, I included a certain morning of silence during the rhythm of each week. I wonder why I've not thought to do that in these last many years. I shall do this again. For me, this requires setting aside some room or space in which I can also control my sound environment. It requires my silence to be honored, since there are times of encountering others, especially when I move from house to the land. I cherish being silent within the land, for this is how I can listen to the unfolding drama called nature. My birthday is in June, and I've decided to gift myself with a day in the week for retreating into silence. At first, I may find that only part of a day or one day of the month will allow for easier integrating of this practice into our life together. This integration is important. Setting aside times for silence in any shared space requires some support from the others. Different choices may exist. Perhaps there's a room that can be used for silent practice. If not a room, then arrange with your partner or housemates for a time period, absent conversation, television, computers, phone, or any other form of engagement that may take your attention away from yourself and places a higher priority on attention to others. As with any change in established interpersonal patterns, it's important that I realize this practice will impact the other. Since silence is requested, this requires others to withhold conversation from you. But there's a critical difference in retreating to within oneself and turning away from another. Turning away can be experienced as rejection, while retreating can be experienced as the opportunity to support the partner seeking silence. And now it occurs to me that I can raise this issue of self-retreating with my drum circles. We could journey and learn from our ancestors about their practices of silence. There might be others in the circles who wish to do this practice. Together we can explore, cultivate, and receive support for infusing our homes with the joys and treasures of walking this path. If we don't manage to have time in and with silence... How shall we hear that soft voice of spirit? How shall we return ourselves to center when we are dispersed by our busy and loud lives? Silently holding hands when we arrive to circle becomes that moment when our breathing and spirit's breath are one, and we start our returning to self as well as circle. Silence is the sound of spirit breathing the universe into being. In closing, I close with a reminder about the SSP June conference here in Santa Cruz County. For those not knowing, the focus of this gathering is self in service, the practice of shamanism without borders. The SSP website provides clear information regarding the weekend and includes the way to register. 
The conference is focused on how we might work together as an international shamanic community to tend places that have experienced trauma from the impact of Earth events, for example, earthquakes, floodings, hurricanes. Together, we will go to sites in Santa Cruz County that still bear the imprint of such traumas. What is learned together in this weekend includes shamanic ways of tending that are applicable in some manner to other regions of the world, including one's own community, one's own backyard. Issues of ethics, appropriate tending and healing methods, collaborating with others in such sites, and developing a cohesive response to these traumatic events are some of the primary topics. Our world will probably experience more and more traumatic earth events because earth herself and her various forms, river, mountain, desert, are changing rapidly. This is our opportunity as walkers of this path to work together to collaborate with our spirits and helpers. This is a gathering where we will be doing what shamanic practitioners do best, in circle, working with spirit and our many helpers, to understand, to divine, to tend earth and her inhabitants, with the intention of leaving footprints of harmony and some peace within the land. Working together, we can tap into our individual and community resources, call upon the spirits that work with us, and participate in the changes being asked of us, being required of us, to tend earth in this time of historical urgency. The SSP conference is but one example of the shamanic community saying, let's make a difference born of love, educated minds, strong hearts, and a difference that demonstrates we have listened and we are responding. I wish for each of us silence, opportunities taken to grow the ear of the animal, to use the shaman's third ear, listen, listening, listen, hearing the voice of spirit, always near, always here. Love and blessings, Carol Proudfoot Edgar. Please note that Carol's email address has changed. She can no longer receive email at the old AOL address. Her new address is carolproudfoot at shamanicvisions.com. Carol's 2010 calendar of workshops can be found at her website, www.shamanicvisions.com. Her calendar is under periodic revision, so it's a good idea to keep checking back. On behalf of Carol, I'd like to thank you for listening, and we hope you join us again next month.